This is Meet Blank, and I'm Sasha Hufka, the Editor-in-Chief of Pipe Dream. Today, we're meeting Dr. David Schultz, a political science professor at Hamline University and an election law expert for a discussion on youth voting ahead of the 2019 general election. David, thank you for joining us today. Of course. Thank you for having me. Of course. So youth voting is something that has been a really popular topic, not just leading up to this year's elections, but also just in the past few years. And that's something that's gotten a lot of attention, both from media and also from political experts. Um, so since we're talking about youth voting today, uh, I figured I'd just start out by asking you a little bit about why do you think that young people voting, 18, 19, 20, 21-year-olds, um, getting involved in like that civic process is so important, particularly at this period within American politics. Well, I want to sort of approach that in a couple of ways and say that it's not just a recent problem. Uh, it goes back for a long, long period of time. Remember, if we take us back 50 years ago, part of the protests during the Vietnam War era were what? We had 21-year-old laws for being able to vote. The protest was what? Old enough to fight, old enough to die, should be old enough to vote. So 1976, we get the first elections where 18-year-olds can vote. And you were thinking, wow, this is going to be a really huge turnout. It was probably maybe in the for the presidential election of 1976, you probably had about maybe 30% of 18 to 22-year-olds turnout. It's never been great, um, but it's actually gone down over time. If we're holding constant saying, okay, what was it like in the 70s versus now? And I think there's a couple of reasons why it's gone down first. Um, one is that look at some of the experience that many college students are seeing um, for the last, let's say, 10 or so years. They're seeing, what, two major parties squabble, not getting anything done, and they're looking at it and saying, my God, why would I want to be involved in a process like this? So I think the political system is sending the wrong signals. And then, two, I also think another reason why is that, for the most part, the two major political parties aren't talking about the issues that I think college students care about. The exception being, I'm going to say, is in 2016, where a guy named Bernie Sanders started talking about what? The high cost of college education. And people suddenly say, hey, now I'm interested in what this guy has to say. So I think the causes for not um, participating, again, some historical, some of it's about a lot of times younger people say, I don't know enough about, about the candidates. I don't know how to register to vote. I don't know where to go, things like that. Um, or it's the issues or the polarization. Why is it important to be able to vote? And why get involved? With my students, I sometimes start with a real simple, simple answer. There's a reason why college students are poor and thirsty. And what I'm hitting at is what? 21-year-old drinking laws and also the fact that college education is expensive or there's not sufficient, let's say, money to help pay for college. It's because why? Young people don't show up and vote. And if they don't show up to vote, it becomes easier for the politicians to do what? dump the costs onto them. So if for no other reason, even if you didn't say it's your, it's a duty to do so, it's a great thing to do, it's actually in college students' interest to participate because there's a lot of critical choices that you can affect. And it's interesting that you say that um, the number of college students voting has actually been going down over time. Because I think that's been true, but recently, at least here on Binghamton University's campus, we've actually seen a little bit of a turnaround mm -hmm. with that. So um, Binghamton was finally named a voter-friendly campus for this year, and right. presumably hoping the turnout is good this year, that will continue. Um, but turnout also increased 23.2 percentage points in 2018 from 2014, from the last midterm election. Um, and that's according to reports from the Institute of Democracy and Higher Education at yeah. Tufts University. Um, 
So we are kind of seeing that this right. is growing slightly, right? right. It is. It is. It's, you're right. As I was going to say, when I talked about going down, if we're looking at sort of like a, a period over, like, say, a 40 or 50 year, um, 2008, it sort of peaked a little bit for Obama's election, went down a little bit. It's starting to go back up again at this point. So some of this might just be, I don't know, you know, I don't know, natural variation, you know, in, or, or, or small fluctuations. But you're right. We're starting to see it go up. And... And again, coming back to the um, the importance for why, I know we all always think about it's presidential elections. We think at that scale, but we shouldn't forget about the fact that local elections are are very very important too. And local elections can have a huge impact on students' lives. I mention this because I went to undergraduate here. Um, I also at one point was what Binghamton City Director of Code Enforcement. And I mention that because when I was doing that, and that's the job where people call code enforcement if like they have problems with their landlord or a whole bunch of other things, I would get students who would call and say that, well, gosh, my landlord's not putting the heat on or not making repairs to something like that. And the reason why I mention that is that while many people may not think that local government and politics influences or affects you as a student, if you live off campus, if you drive off campus, if you shop off campus, if you have any interrelationship with, let's say, the larger community in Binghamton, Vestal, you know, Johnson City, Broome County, local politics matters to you and should. And you should show up to vote because you can have an, you and your friends together can have an enormous influence. And I mean, in Binghamton, that's especially true given that about 50% of our student body, both undergraduate and almost all of our graduate, live completely off campus. So they are not, they're in the city of Binghamton, they're in Johnson City, they're in Vestal, um, and kind of the surrounding areas there. Um, and actually this year, the elections that are on the ballot for uh, 2019, the upcoming election on November 5th, which is a Tuesday, um, those races, there's one that is for a state Supreme Court justice. We have a few seats sure. open there, but the rest of them, all of Binghamton City Council seats are currently open, and the Broome County DA's race is going on. Yeah. Um, and those are elections where students could potentially make an impact. I guess part of the question is how much of an impact, given the population of BU's student body versus the population of the area. I think it can have a huge impact. Okay, so I may be slightly off in my numbers here. Help me out here. I think Binghamton's population is somewhere around 44,000 approximately. Okay, so let's say it's about 44,000 in terms of the numbers of um, uh, people in Binghamton. Let's assume for the sake of argument that of that population, let's say, I'll be even somewhat high, let's say 25,000 are eligible to vote. And in a local non-midterm, or let's say a non-major election year like this is in 2019, we know nationwide that voter turnout is between 10 and 20 percent. It's incredibly low. So you could conceivably have in the city of Binghamton, let's say, probably no more than maybe four, five, six thousand people voting or something like that in an election. Imagine if students turned out to vote in large percentages in just the city of Binghamton alone for those council races. Um, it wouldn't take very many votes for what? For students to really do what? To have a major impact because if we're looking at what would you say five thousand who are living off campus approximately let's say probably let's, closer to seven seven okay but let's say there's let's say let's and again i don't know what the breakdown is but let's say there's like two or three thousand students just in binghamton alone in an election where you might not even see ten thousand people vote in the in these elections if you could get what, 
even a couple of thousand students from Bingham from from, um, from Binghamton University to vote, what impact could that potentially have upon the council election? That's enormous. That's a huge voting block out there. And I'll note that we've seen this on a bigger scale before. Right. Um, you know, the 2018 midterms, we in New York 22 had one of the most closely contested um, congressional races in the country. That's right, you did. And Anthony Brindisi won over incumbent Claudia Tenney by approximately 15,000 votes or so, if I have my numbers correct mm -hmm. there. Um, Binghamton University's student population, just total student population in general, about 16,000 students. That's right. And there's not that many colleges within New York 22. I think it's Binghamton, um, Colgate University, right. Hamilton College, Utica College. But it's feasible to say there that students potentially really could move the needle on that race and likely did. Right. Um, do you think that that's something that could happen again, also looking forward to 2020 when that race is going to be up? I think, you're, I think you're absolutely correct. Yeah. In 2020, you know, we have to obviously talk about the different levels of the elections here. You know, but if we think of 2016, you know, let's say, look at 2016. Part of what happened in 2016, to some extent, women, people of color, and to some extent, um, people under the age of 30, you know, and, and to some extent, college students, didn't turn out in the percentages that they needed to for, for let's, you know, um, to be able to tip the election in a way that would have maybe elected, let's say, Hillary Clinton or would have maybe tipped the presidential election. And we saw that all the way down the line in terms of kind of had like a coattails effect here. Now, 2018, we, we saw that uptick again, that college students were more motivated to show up and vote. And, and, and what I'm getting at here is exactly your point, is that we oftentimes think of like elections about being what, thousands or millions of people. Elections are really what, the logic of small numbers. It's moving small little numbers of groups, this group here, that group there, and so forth. And when you have a lot of students who stay home and don't vote, um, you, it could be enough to just tip elections one way or the other. But also I want to come back to, it's not just about tipping elections. It's about, remember, elections have consequences in terms of public policy. Um, our elections are about what? Potentially, if at the local level, it could be about, as I was talking to somebody else recently, let us say for all the students who live in Binghamton this coming year, um, it could be about what? Saying, showing up and voting and saying, because we want what? We want a grocery store in downtown Binghamton because there's not one right now. At, at the state level, it could be about, about issues regarding, I don't know, enforcement of laws, about student financial aid. At the presidential level, it's about a whole range of issues about foreign and domestic policy. So students, if you just view it as yourself, as one person, maybe you think I don't make a difference. But if you think of you and your friends voting together, um, voting um, as, as a block, moving blocks of voters is really how you change elections. And just like you said, I think there are issues beyond even just the stereotypical things that college students would care about, right? So right. things like drinking laws, things right. like, um, you know, obviously college tuition and kind of the crisis that's currently right. going on with that. There are other issues that college students do deeply care about, even if they don't necessarily think about them in terms of those issues. So a great example of this is recently the Binghamton City Council um, was voting on a new zoning plan yes. in the city of Binghamton, and that zoning plan would have drastically altered the way um, that student rentals would kind of look in Binghamton's west side. Um, enough landlords and students went to a planning meeting and spoke out about that, that they are now completely scrapping that plan. They're starting from scratch, and they're saying this new plan will have a lot more opportunity for public input 
along the way. So even though a student might think about, oh, zoning, that's not something that really pertains to me. I don't really know much about that or what that is. That can be something that actually ends up having quite a big impact on them. Um, and I think that we see this on the national level, too. We see things like immigration law and stuff like that. There are students who are first-generation right. um, students. I'm one of them. I'm a first-generation uh, Russian-American. So there's things that you don't necessarily think about how they impact your everyday life, but they certainly are things that people care about. Right. That's a great example. I think the zoning one is a terrific one because the city of Binghamton, you're right. It's about how you zone to how many units can be placed there. Also about what, how many unrelated or non-related people can be together before uh, many states still have laws, including New York, that regulate those issues. So you're right. Or about questions about what, let's say, parking your car or or what if a snowstorm hits, and what do you have to do in terms of like your car, things like that. So none of these seem like um, issues that on first blush, students would say, or you say these are student issues, but they are. They're quality of life issues. And what I point out is local government is about quality of life. Local government is about what? It's about the, the fire department that shows up to put out the fire. It's about the trash collectors. It is about zoning. It is about, um, let's say, recycling. Remember, at a time when the national government's not doing that much on, let's say, environmental issues, um, a big way that you can have an impact on the local environment or on the environment is through local law, through recycling, through a whole bunch of things. So I think you're absolutely right, is that we need to be thinking about how do we connect students' day-to-day -day lives to, let's say, voting into government because there are a variety of different levels of which you are impacted by what government does. And I think that that's only also part of the story yes. regarding why students are or are not turning out. Right. And one of the kind of interesting things that I wanted to talk about is some of the recent voter uh, reform that we've seen in New York State. Um, so this year, for this coming election, a few new things got approved. We've got early voting. Um, we've got in-state registration transfer. So if you move from one area of the state to another, which many students do mm -hmm. to go to college, um, your registration will automatically transfer if you were registered in your hometown to Broome County. You just have to let the Board of Elections know, hey, I moved. Um, you've got primary consolidation, different things that kind of make it a lot easier uh, for students to navigate this very complex process of when do I register and, and when do I do those other things. Do you predict that any of those things would maybe have a pretty significant impact on the number of students that we maybe see come out to vote in this year's races as compared to other races that were off years, they weren't midterms, they weren't presidential elections, they really were just a lot of local and state level races. Yeah, I think it should help because the rules of, say, the election law rules really determine the rules of the game. And what I mean by that is that if you start to think about, for example, I'll go back when I went to college here, the rule was that you had to register to vote 60 days before the election. Now think about this. What's the average, let's say, college student, especially 18-year-old, thinking about 60 days before the November election? I'm thinking about what? Moving into my dorm, starting my classes. If I'm a first-year student, it's transitioning from home. I mean, the rules were actually written in many ways intentionally to what? Make it difficult for young people to be able to vote. And what we know is that as we started to allow for more um, laxity or make it easier to early vote or absentee vote or as you're talking about here to transfer your voter registration it does make it easier for students to be able to vote 
because again, it's a very complex process. Um, and, and again, for the average 18 year old, and I'm not faulting anybody who's 18, first time voting or first time, let's say 19 years old, this is a complex process. Um, and, and the state of New York has historically made it very difficult. And so making these laws a little bit easier to navigate, as we've seen in other states, should lead to higher voter turnout among college students. And there's also currently things that, you know, are kind of on the table, but there are things that haven't been passed that we don't have those things yet. Things like open primaries, things like no excuse absentee ballots, right. um, things like same day voter registration, which would essentially make it so you could just walk on in, show them your driver's license or some form of identification, sign up and go vote. Yeah. Um, do you predict that these are things that maybe will start to come to the forefront in coming years, given this increased emphasis on young people voting? And beyond that, you know, how do you think those things could also impact okay. races down the line? Okay. okay, so first let me start by saying that I'm in the state of Minnesota now where we have day of election registration. We have, um, we have early voting that allows you to vote, no excuse early voting, 45 days before the election. Um, we have open primaries. All those things that you're describing, what does Minnesota have overall? the highest voter turnout in the nation consistently. Wow. Um, in, a, in a presidential election year, we will have overall overall turnout rates um, up close to 78 to 79%. Um, we will have midterm election turnouts up close to 58 to 59%. If you go down to the student level or college level, we have the highest turnout rates among college students in the country. The point being is everything that you described works. It does work to get students to turn out. That's why the rules matter. And if students can now, think about, we're talking about a cycle here. If we can get students to start to turn out now and then say, gosh, we turned out now, we want to have 45 days or 30 days, or we want to have no accessibility, it's only going to create momentum to increase the turnout even more. And I know that kind of one of the concerns against doing some of these things is, you know, voting security, essentially. Yeah. How do you, you want to make sure that, you know, people who are voting are people who are actually eligible to vote. But what are some of the other concerns regarding some of these changes and why do you think they haven't been enacted? Okay, first, well, first off, I'm going to say that voter fraud has been sort of waived for quite a few years as a problem. I've been involved in several studies, including one of them with the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism, which studied, for example, all instances of voter fraud um, over several elections. I'll start off by saying you've got a better chance of, of winning the Powerball than you have of showing that voter fraud exists as a problem in the United States. This is largely, this whole fear of voter fraud um, is what? It's largely an effort to disenfranchise people. I mean, in some ways, these were the same language used in the 19th century to basically take voting rights away from African Americans, from immigrants, and it's the same language right now coming back again to say, gosh, we can't let certain people vote or we can't do this kind of reform because think of the fraud that occurs. Fraud is minuscule in this country. Um, and so we, sh we should first dismiss that as, as a legitimate argument, and statistics bear that out there. But as we're starting to think about some of the other issues in terms of, let's say, um, increasing turnout, I think the debates that we're going to start to have at this point are going to be, for example, some people are saying, should we do online voting? There's a whole bunch of sort of questions about hackability out there. Should we stay with paper ballots or to eliminate them? We've got questions about whether or not if we eliminate paper ballots, what do we do for recounts? So I think there's going to be a variety of sort of technological questions that we have to address because, again, I think a lot of college students would say, why can't I just vote on my cell phone? 
Right. And I think that, you know, even before you get to those technological questions, you also have these other questions that are currently ongoing that almost need to be answered because you need to have some sort of a framework to do all of that stuff, right? right? In order to say, okay, online voting is okay, you know, you would need to presumably try to get all this other stuff that works with the current system that we have. Right past as well so on the horizon i'm guessing that there's probably going to be a lot of discussion around um different ways not just to influence college students to vote but also to influence other groups that historically have turned out oh sure sure i was gonna say i mean i can go your i can go several ways with your question here you know one of them of course is sort of like the technology of voting but i think the other question i think it's implicit in what you're asking here um is the forces that are coming to bear that influence how people make voting choices. And one aspect is to think about what? You know, we have estimates now that are saying that, what, 40% of, let's say, Facebook are bots and it's, and it's fake information. You know, um, uh, to what extent is that um, having a, uh, an improper influence upon our elections? Um, we're also looking at um, perhaps other questions in terms of, as we're seeing here, efforts to... Um, suppress voting you know, in terms of, I mean, it, across many parts of the country, there are efforts to um, to intimidate voters, there are efforts to um, close voting, voting places. So we have a whole bunch of, I think, other questions here. You know, and I say to my election law students is that even though, at least in theory, we say we have a right to vote, um, there are so many challenges in terms of actually making that truly universal, um, technological, political, racial, economic, that, that we still have a lot of work to do just to sort of um, get, get, I'm almost called, to get to the basics of getting people out to vote. Now, here's an interesting thought, too. How does youth voter turnout in the United States compare with youth voter turnout in other countries? So, for example, like Canada or the United Kingdom, countries that kind of are similar to us somewhat, at least in terms of how their voting process works. Well, in general, I mean, we could do this in general and then more specifically. In general, U.S. voter turnout is is lower than almost all of our peers. And the peers are the countries like you're referring to, U.K., France, Canada, and so forth. And we've got a similar problem when it gets down to youth voting also, is that our voter turnouts are generally nowhere near as high as we would see in those other countries also. Um, and so we, there's a lot that we could learn from those, uh, from those other countries in terms of what they do. Again, in terms of the fact that for many of those countries, um, voting takes place on weekends. It's more than one day. Um, they have um, perhaps um, more, more leeway in terms of what we would call absentee voting. Um, so there's a variety of, of things that they're doing. Um, plus, they're also putting much more as a culture, in many of those countries, much more, let's say, cultural and political emphasis upon actually getting people out to vote. And we can also take a look at this just on a more campus level, too, because I know that on our campus, for example, we have the Center for Civic Engagement, um, which is a university-backed group that does a lot of things with volunteering in the local community, but also with voting and getting students to vote. The uh, campus political groups, you know, college Democrats, college Republicans, college Libertarians, college Progressives, um, and then also other groups like Gen Vote really try to get people registered and ready to vote, but on a campus level, you know, what do you think is the culture of voting on individual campuses? And also, how do you kind of keep that momentum going once you have it started? Well, clearly, 
your, your, your question almost answers the question that clearly some campuses have more of a culture of, of engagement than others do. Some of them, the let us say the administration um, or the faculty uh, uh, and the student groups put greater emphasis upon that. So again, so my simple answer is to say it really does vary by campus. I think Binghamton is doing a pretty good job. I should also say that dating back many, many years, um, Binghamton has a very good let's say, legacy in terms of trying to encourage student activism and student engagement. Um, other schools, certainly not, not as good. But I think the fact that what we seem to have here is a combination of the, of the university itself and many of the groups working together is good. But I think the challenge is sort of two things now. One is that think about, again, how many distractions students have in their lives, all the things going on. So one, it's getting students' attention, especially those, let's say, those first-time voters to say, guess what, um, you can vote now. Here's what you have to do to vote. Here's how you have to register. Here's where you have to go, et cetera, et cetera. But then also making the case as to what, what um, now that you're registered, why you should vote and how you gather the information to be able to make those meaningful choices. So you're talking a little bit about kind of all of these distractions that are happening in everyday yeah. life. And I know, I'm a student, you know, I have a million text messages to answer every yeah. day. I have an email account to check. And yeah. beyond that, you know, I have classes, I have homework, I have, the little things that are due that aren't necessarily homework, but you know, you have a big project in a week, you got to keep working on it, you have a midterm, you got to study for it. Right. Um, how do you get around all of those distractions if you're a student group or an organization that's looking to try to help this voting process? Okay, okay. a few different things. First, don't think that as any group or any one organization, you're going to move a thousand people. Think about it in terms of what? You're going to try to get what? 10 more people registered to vote or five more people to show up. Or you as an individual, think of it in terms of saying that uh, I'm going to try to get what, three or four of my friends to show up or vote or something like that or register to vote. So, so break it down to smaller numbers. Okay, That's the first thing. The second thing, again, that we know, especially with students, and again, because this is a transitional period in life, you know, from living at home to sort of transitioning to learning how to be an adult, learning how to like juggle, you know, homework, doing your laundry, whatever, whatever it may be or something like that is that you do have all these distractions here. And I think also the challenge for people, uh, for organizations, people trying to get registered to vote, is A, first, just getting people's attention. And, and it's, it's finding out where, where um, students are, whether it's physically or digitally, and getting their attention. I want to tell you this great story, um, I'm part of this here, is that I was working with the local CBS affiliate um, back in Minnesota where I live now. Mm -hmm. And they were talking about um, their, 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 their digital, their online component for their news. They said that the average person who goes online spends two and a half seconds um, um, on a page, and that's it, uh, like that. And so think about it now. If you're trying to reach, reach students like anybody else, um, let's say digitally, you know, whether it's through you know, Instagram or whatever like that, you've got two and a half seconds to get people's attention. So how do, we, how do we deal with that issue of these incredibly rapid attention spans? And then after we even get people's attention, get them to register to vote, how do we now actually convince them to say your vote matters? And so what I think we have to be thinking about here, how do we get people's attention? How do we get students' attention? And then with that, how do we connect the vote to what is happening in their life personally? Because I think those are the challenges. And again, as we talked about before, most students aren't thinking about zoning codes, trash ordinances, or plowing the streets as issues right. that impact their life. And I think that one of the ways we've maybe 
kind of seen this start to happen a little bit is through a lot of the activism that's been happening over the mm -hmm. last few years. You know, students have been demonstrating, students right. have been protesting at Binghamton University. I mean, even since I was a freshman, I know we had a massive protest my freshman year, um, the Blue Lights protest. Yes. Um, and that was a really big deal. And then, you know, you talk about protests on just a larger scale as well. Right now we have a lot of climate activism uh, strikes going on around the world and also in Binghamton. We've had two or three of them recently. Um, how does that kind of connect to what you're talking about? Because we've seen young people kind of coming out for those things. Right. And that's interesting. Okay, let's take us back to 2016. Bernie Sanders was incredibly successful in getting 25,000 students out to a rally, but not getting them to turn over to do what? To actually show up to vote. And this is the challenge that, yeah, showing up for demonstrations, showing up for rallies um, is good. But don't forget the fact that what? In our society, for good or for bad, it's still the electoral connection. Uh, that you actually have to show up to vote because politicians at the end of the day, uh, not all of them are going to be scared or not all of them are going to care about what? Are going to care about the 25,000 people showed up a rally in, in downtown, you know, wherever it is, downtown, something like that. What you actually have to do um, is, to, is to link that, let's say, demonstration democracy with actual voter turnout because that's what matters. Again, I'll tell a story here. When I was an undergraduate here, um, I, I was involved with a few different groups. I'm, I'm local. Um, one, of the group issues, one of the issues we were working on was trying to get the bottle bill passed in, 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 in New York, basically have recyclable mm -hmm. bottles. Warren Anderson was the state senator, but he was the head of the Senate. He didn't believe in the bottle bill and wouldn't let it be brought up for a vote. But because none of the students involved, with the exception of me, um, were registered to vote and registered to vote in this area, mm -hmm. Warren Anderson's vote view was, why should I listen to you folks? You're not, my, you're not my constituents. You don't vote. I was the one who had to go talk to him. Now, and, and I still wasn't successful, but the point was, he wasn't going to talk to anybody unless they were registered to vote um, and they were registered to vote here to have an impact. And so that's part of it also. If you want to get your vote or your voice heard, a demonstration's okay to start with, but you've got to have, be able to exercise that threat of saying what? I'm not going to vote for you. I'm going to vote for your opponent. That's, that's the power of your voice. And how does that play into primary elections too? Because, you know, we've seen times where there are candidates within parties where one candidate is very much so backed by students, and another candidate is more backed by older adults. That's right. Um, if students aren't going to show up for the primary race, yeah. is that other candidate going to listen to them either? They're not, they're not going to. You're right. And so think, I mean, the primaries are the way that, what, you get to sort of substitute your view into who's going to be representing the party. I gave a talk on Friday here and talked about generational politics and, and how politics differs across generations and pointed out the fact that, think about 2016, we had people under the age of 30 who overwhelmingly supported Bernie Sanders, people over the age of, let's say, 30 were more Hillary Clinton, uh, that, that when we got to the final general election, actually even to the primaries, many of those people supported Bernie Sanders but didn't show up at the primaries. Clinton gets the nomination instead. And so again, whether it's Bernie Sanders, whether it's this election, it could be who knows, whatever it's like that. Uh, we're going to have, in 2020, a, a lot of primaries, a lot of primary choices to make. And if you really have a candidate you want, don't just say, well, heck, I'll just wait until the general election. 
by the time you get there, what the train has already left the station. Um, if you really want to be um, getting on that, let's say that train, if I can use that as a metaphor, you have to show up to the primaries. In fact, I could even work it for earlier. Um, if you really want to have an influence, candidates need people to do what? Door knock, phone call. Um, that's the best way, absolute best way. And it also teaches you a series of skills that you can eventually use to what? Run yourself, run other candidates. Because at some point, campaigns are still highly dependent upon real bodies to do real things. Right, but even if you're not someone who's interested yeah. you know, in going into politics, yeah. you can still register. You can still register, head to the primaries, vote in the primaries, affiliate yourself with a party. Because in New York, we don't have open primaries. Right. you got to affiliate yourself with someone. But affiliate yourself with someone who you, know, you think matches you most closely. Go out, vote, and then you can also just go and vote in the general election. And I think that that also is... Yes, bodies are powerful, bodies are important, but for a lot of students, even just doing that is something that definitely is a step in the right direction. No, you're right. I was going to say, the, um, your voice is never heard if you never exercise your voice. And at the end of the day, you know, I, um, I, don't know, I don't know if it's still politically correct to quote this person, but I'll quote it anyhow and say, <laughs> someone once said, 90% of life is just showing up. In politics, I'm going to say 99% of politics is just showing up. Uh, it, um, politics is about voter mobilization. It's about people showing up and, and, and speaking on their behalf. I mean, what if I told you, what if I told you, and I, I know you're female, what if I told you, this is 100 years ago, and I said, you don't need to vote. Why? I'm as your father, I'm as your, as your husband. I can adequately represent your interests. You don't need to vote. What would you say to me? Um, things that I can't say on this podcast. <laughs> that's right, that's right. But, but what we're getting at here is that at some point, we come to believe that what? Everybody speaks for themselves. And if right. you don't show up and speak for yourself, you're not going to get heard. Well, and nobody's going to do it for you, quite that's honestly. Right. That's right, and they can't do that for you. I mean, it's one person, one vote. It's not, um, I vote for you, I vote for somebody else. But if you don't show up, what's happening? Somebody else is essentially what? speaking for you, and it may not be. And it may be that, and even if we're right, even if you don't care about politics, maybe you care about the fact that what? You care about, um, I don't know, let's say you care about the environment. You care about what? Minimum wage laws, work pay safety laws. You care about whether or not internships are paid or not paid. Or it could be um, about, let's say, who knows? A whole bunch of different things. If you don't say something, that means somebody else is speaking for you. And interesting kind of question about this vo these voices, too, is that, you know, as people age, obviously their voice still continues to matter and still is important. Yeah. If somebody is voting now as a young adult, somebody who's 18, 19, 20, they're getting involved, they're registering for the first time, they're going to vote, are they more likely to continue voting in the future? Yes, yes, which is one of the, yes, if, if, there's pretty good evidence, like so many things in life, that if you establish patterns in your adolescence or early adulthood, and there's psychological studies, all kinds of developmental psych studies that support this, it establishes a habit going forward. Um, and which is why, for example, um, there are some people who actually advocate why dropping the the, um, the voting age to 16 so we can mm -hmm. start to build that. But you're absolutely correct here, is that like so many things else in life, if you make this part of a habit, you build it into your system. I mean, think about, for example, the first time for many of you, I have to go exercise. I mean, you, if you're not exercising regularly, it's a pain in the butt to figure out how to get into your system or get into your regimen. But after you sort of say, well, gosh, I got I to 
exercise three times a week or I got to take a walk or whatever is like that. You build it into your habit, it becomes part of your life. And voting is like that also. If there's anything that students who are listening to this or even community members who are listening to this could take away from what you're saying, what would you want them to take away? And the most important thing I want to say is that, and maybe, it's, maybe it sounds trite, um, but it's still true at the end of the day, um, that, that voting does matter in our society is that you may think, I'm only one person, what does my vote mean? But no, it's, it's groups of votes. It's, it's, it's having people um, um, have influence of having a say that matters. I've taught a lot overseas, and maybe this is the other thing I want to say here. I've taught a lot overseas. I've taught in um, former, former parts of the Soviet Union, um, in what used to be called Eastern Europe, in countries where what? People didn't have a right to vote or the right to vote was completely not, not meaningful whatsoever. Um, and I say that because I talk to the, those students there and they understand immediately say, yeah, I have to vote because if I don't vote, um, maybe I'm gonna lose it, maybe someone's gonna do something to me. Um, and so I would come back here and say that, that at the end of the day, even if you don't accept the arguments for civic duty or anything like that, think of it in terms of what? Voting is raw self-interest sometimes. It is. I have to speak for myself, whatever it may be about, so that somebody hears me. Go vote. Go vote. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, David, for coming on. Really appreciate it. No problem. Thanks for having me. This is Meet Blank with Dr. David Snyder, and I'm Sasha Hufka. Thanks for listening. Until next time, go vote. General elections will be held on Tuesday, November 5th, and you can get coverage of the races and the candidates by picking up an issue of Pipe Dream's election issue or visiting our website at bupipedream.com.